0: Good morning, everyone. If you have your Bibles, please open to Gospel of John, John chapter 17. Uh, before we get started here, I just want to uh, make sure you're aware, and anyone who's not here as well, that you're aware that our, our mother's room is operational. So if you're worried about um, bringing children, um, about them disrupting the service, you don't have to worry about that. Uh, my wife was rejoicing in there this morning, um, although uh, so Alyssa, she was there with a, another little girl, the same age, and I guess she's not used to um, playing with somebody her age, and every single toy she kept grabbing and, and saying, "Mine, mine." And she, she doesn't say anything, but apparently she knows how to say that. so um, Yeah, so please please join us and bring your children. Okay, we've been in John for, well, I started preaching in John chapter 9, and we've journeyed through uh, chapter 17 now throughout this year. It's been a, a wonderful journey, uh, at least it has been for me. Um, and we've been, this is the third week uh, in John chapter 17. We're looking at Jesus' prayer just before going to the cross. This is the longest recorded prayer of Jesus in Scripture. Um, he prayed for us, and He prayed for the church, that we would be kept. I don't know if you remember that. That we would be sanctified in the truth. This morning, in this last section that we look at, uh, he prays that we would be unified. So let's read this together. John 17 from verse 20 through to 26. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, Are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me, and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am come together, Lord, and and we just thank you for your word. We thank you for what it does in the life of the church. We believe in the power of your word to build your church. We pray that you would do that, Father. We pray that you would build us up in unity today, that you would start something in people's lives, Lord, a work of reconciliation, wherever that need be, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In uh, Dwight Pentecost's commentary on the the book of Philippians, he tells a story of a a church in Dallas, Texas that split. And it was quite a a nasty affair. Um, They eventually, there were two factions within the church, and they were fighting over rights uh, for the church property. It went to court, and apparently went even as far as the state Supreme Court. Uh, There, the court decided that it was something that the denomination needed to weigh in on and decide. Um, But while this was going on, a reporter started digging around to try and get to the bottom of the the problem and how this split began. And he he reported in a newspaper, uh, he found that uh, the beginning of the fight happened at a a church dinner. The church was having a dinner, Um, they were waiting in line, an elder was waiting in line. There was a youngster in front of the elder. The youngster was served a a portion of food, and the elder was served a portion of food that was a little bit less than that youngster. The elder was not happy about that. A fight started in the church, and one thing led to another. Eventually, the church split. Obviously, there there were other things going on, I'm sure, other things wrong in the life of that church. But we rightly recoil at that, don't we? We know that that shouldn't happen. The life of the church, it it shouldn't be in the papers. The world shouldn't see that when when they look at the church. Remember John 13, verse 35, Jesus said, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus thought the unity of the church was so important, and apparently in leaving his disciples, he, he thought it was so important to pray this for them, that we actually see this four times in John 17. He prays that they may be one. What are we to do with this prayer of Jesus? How are we to apply it to our, our situation today? Are church splits always bad? Um, in the United States now, the United Methodist Church is um, going to vote soon, I believe, on whether there will be a split there as well. Um, some churches going one way and the other churches another. And they are voting to whether or not to split based on the, um, the issue of same-sex marriage. Should the church be allowing and performing same-sex marriages? Um, should ministers uh, who are openly living that lifestyle be allowed to minister? That's happening right now in the States. Are church splits always bad? What is Jesus praying for here? Should the United Methodist Church be saying, you know what? Unity is more important than these differences and difference over this issue. What is expected of you and me? What is Jesus praying for us? That's what we want to unpack this morning. I have four headings for us. Um, We're going to look at three. I believe there are three foundations for Christian unity in this passage, and then one purpose we'll look at at the end. Foundation number one for Christian unity Jesus prays about, speaks about here, the oneness of our Trinitarian God, the oneness of God as a foundation for unity. A German philosopher, Arthur Schopenhauer, famously um, used an analogy to describe uh, our struggle for community, for for humans to be in community with one another. And he likened us to porcupines on a, a freezing winter's night, there's this group of porcupines that are outside in a winter's night, um, outside in the cold, and to get away from the cold, they huddle together, and, and they try to escape the the cold. And closer and closer they get together until they begin to stab one another with their quills. And that's human community, and so being stabbed in the back by a quill, a porcupine would flee out into the night, and there start to freeze again, realizing the need for community, for for that huddle. And so back into the huddle that porcupine would go, into the huddle, stabbed, back out into the night. he, He said this is how we are as humans. And he didn't really have a solution, but Schopenhauer said that the happiest porcupines are those who are able to generate their own heat so that they can be sort of in the huddle, close enough, but not close enough to be stabbed by a quill close enough to community, but not vulnerable enough to uh, to be stabbed by a quill. Perhaps there is something a little bit better for the church, a heat, yes, that can be generated, but maybe not by us. Maybe something supernatural that goes on in the life of the church that enables us to bear with one another, bear with the, the quills. Christ's prayer in this passage for unity is that the The unity of the Godhead itself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, would be the model, and and not just the model, but the source of our unity as well. In verse 21, Jesus prays that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. In verse 22 and 23, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Wherever you go into the world, to a group of people, into a community, there are things that tend to divide. There are many things that we divide over, issues of age, race, language, personality, socioeconomic standing, uh, preference, politics we've seen, a lot of recently. In the church, what is it that unites us? What is it that unites every true believer in Jesus Christ? We are all indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The living God lives in us. The community that that you would see in the world, often those communities are formed around something um, external, their communities formed around race or interests, maybe politi- political agenda, backgrounds, similar backgrounds. That's how the people in the world would, would unite themselves. How are we in the church to, to be united? Not just by the external. There are external foundations for our unity, but there is something internal as well. The life-giving Spirit of God lives in you and me, and that needs to transform us into a supernatural community. That's what the world needs to see when they see the church. Do they see that when they look at HBC? Uh, what unites us cannot just be external. Not if it is modeled after I and you and you in me. The Bible speaks of a, a bond of peace that we have. Uh, Not something that we generate by ourselves, but something that we are called to, the Bible says, maintain. We're called to keep, to guard that bond of peace. It is not something that we get to begrudge and live in the church. We don't just coexist in this place just for a common purpose. Our heart cannot be, you know what, there's that person um, that I just don't like And I'll I'll exist in the same space as them, but you know what? I avoid you, you avoid me. For Jesus' sake, we'll make this work. That's not how we do it. Our unity flows from the essential oneness of a Trinitarian God. That is a sign, by the way, that the Spirit is at work in the life of the church. A unity, a spirit of unity that pervades, that shapes the way that we speak to one another, What we do, it shapes our attitudes and our hearts. How do you know if you're a spirit-filled church? Miraculous signs? No. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It's the, the fruit of the Spirit at work amongst us. we don't just coexist here. We press in to one another, to love in service, to bless, to shepherd, to correct, to care for one another. David Strain comments on this passage. He says, Jesus here is calling for a unity of the heart, a whole-souled unity that presses toward one another, that aspires to grow closer and closer until it mirrors as closely as redeemed creatures and sinners can the profound unity of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in the Blessed Trinity. This ought to be a little bit scary to us, what Jesus is praying here, because he prays for unity, but that prayer is simultaneously a prayer, actually, that we would remain in God. He says that they would be in us. There is a connection between division in the church and a sense of spiritual distance from God. So before I continue, I want to take an opportunity just to ask you today, to ask you today, does something need to change in your heart for a spirit of unity to prevail in the life of this church? Is there something in your heart that would block unity today? Prejudice, perhaps. Racism. A spirit of of unforgiveness. Is there somebody that you are avoiding in this church? I love the, the picture that Jesus paints of the church in the Gospel of Matthew. So, in two passages, he speaks about how we are to relate to one another. In Matthew five twenty three and 24, Jesus says, If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. If you've sinned against somebody, go and make it right. And maybe you're saying, yes, preach, I'm waiting. I'm waiting for that person to come to me to seek forgiveness Well, in Matthew 18, 15, Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault, between you and him alone, not to everyone else. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. The the picture that Jesus paints of unity in the churches of people who are running toward one another all the time to forgive and to seek forgiveness. That's how we do it. That's how we operate as children of God. We cannot let pride destroy Christian unity in the church. We need to be unified, I think especially at this time. That's what the world needs from us. What do you need to do today? Do you need to pick up the phone and call somebody? Allow God to do something in your life and in the life of this church for the glory of Christ. Jesus' hope for our unity here he says, that they may be in us, Father and Son, Holy Spirit. We grow closer together as we draw nearer to God. It's the truth about our unity. So our hope for unity is eyes that are, are fixed on Jesus, fixed on him, must be sincere, something that's internal. It must be a matter of our desires, a matter of our heart, but it must also be founded in something outside of us. And so our second and our third foundations are external foundations. Number two, the second foundation for unity in the church is the truth. The truth. In 1948, the the so-called um, World Council of Churches was formed and it was formed with a desire for christian unity. The members of this council uh, involve a wide variety of different churches from different denominations and in order to broaden their reach they only have one statement of faith statement of belief and this is what they what it is The World Council of Churches is a fellowship of churches which confess Jesus Christ as God and Savior according to the scriptures, and therefore seek to fulfill together their common calling to the glory of one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now that is a good statement, but is it enough by itself? Is the answer to our our unity that we would find the, the lowest common theological denominator And so as to include as many different beliefs as possible. Is that how we build unity? This passage has become the proof text for those, for example, who call for a breaking down of all denominational differences or or differences over theological disunity. Uh, Just in the last couple of weeks, I saw it used in that way. I I have friends in, in Johannesburg who are part of um, the Baptist Northern Association, which is an arm of the, the Baptist Union of South Africa. There's been a lot of turmoil in the Baptist Union over the last few years. Um, so a few years ago, they, they noticed a couple of you know, perhaps holes in their statement of faith, things in, a, in our modern context that need to be clarified a little bit more. And so a committee was formed to, um, to look into plugging those holes and so they came up with a statement of faith that was stronger on certain issues. And one of those issues has unfortunately become contentious around one word, the word inerrancy, inerrancy of scripture, which, by the way, is a hill that we would die on in this church. And so um, the, the, the statement of faith went before the, the union and it was voted upon whether they would accept that or not. And it was, it was blocked at the union. Because it would exclude few too many churches in the Union. So my friends in the Baptist North Association are wanting to adopt the statement of faith. there's some other things they want to do, but they are, are receiving pressure from the Baptist Union just to toe the line. and so they they're at a point where they're deciding for the sake of truth, do we need to secede from the Union? Another split. But is the answer to unity that we would find that lowest common, theological denominator. A a common message in the, the evangelical world today is that it's not doctrine that really matters, but love, unity. Maybe you've heard, doctrine divides, love unites. Have you ever heard that? What does this passage teach? There's a golden thread throughout John 17, and that's the truth, revelation. In verse 11, Jesus says, keep them in your name that they may be one. In other words, keep them in line with who you are as God. Keep them in line with revelation. And that's how they are unified. Verse 17, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. So when Jesus prays that we may be one, it's not that we would, he's not calling for us to break down denominations. There is bearing, certainly, on how we interact with people from other denominations, and there is definitely a tie that unites all true believers in Jesus Christ. We believe in that strongly. We do need to be careful about tribalism. We need to be careful to love and to show grace. But Jesus' prayer isn't about breaking down denominations in this passage. It's not about downplaying theological issues. Issues that might divide. In fact, the opposite is true. This is a call for true unity to be maintained by upholding what is true. By upholding the truth. In verse 20, Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, but also for for those who will believe in me through their word. He's talking about the disciples. That they may be one. We believe through the apostolic word. He points to the word of the apostles as a foundation for unity. So John uh, Stott highlights this from this passage. He says, The unity Jesus prays for here is not only a unity among present believers, but a unity with the apostolic church and its teaching. It is first and foremost a prayer that there may be historical continuity between the church of the first century and the church of subsequent centuries. That the church's faith may not change but remain recognizably the same that the church of every age may merit the title apostolic because it is loyal to the teaching of the apostles. Unity cannot be built on the absence of truth, is the point I'm trying to make. Rather, it is established as we uphold the truth. It is established as we take our eyes off of ourselves. ourselves, Even taking our eyes off of predominantly one another. Fixing our eyes to Jesus Christ, that's how we're going to build unity in the church. And so the third foundation that we see in this passage is the glory of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. What is the glory that Jesus is speaking of here? He prayed about it in the first five verses. You remember? Father, my my hour has come. Glorify the Son, that the Son may glorify you. There is glory in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. There is glory in the fact that though God had every reason, every right in his justice and his holiness, to consign you and me, to consign all of us to an eternity separate from His glory, He left the glory of heaven and He came to redeem. He came to rescue us. There is glory in the towel that was wrapped around His waist as He stooped to serve, to wash their feet. There was glory in the cross. There was glory in Him giving His life as a ransom for us, there was glory in nails that were nailed through hands and feet. There was glory in a crown of thorns. He's talking about the glory of the suffering servant. That is the glory that must drive the church into ever-increasing unity. What do we need for unity to prevail in this place? We, we need to be stripped of the delusion that says, I deserve more than I, than I really do. How how dare that person treat me like that? For unity to, prev- to prevail, we need to take our eyes off of ourselves, off of our comforts, our preferences, our, our privileges and our rights, off of status, and onto the one who was mistreated, scorned, denied, and rejected by you and by me. And in so doing, he saved us. So Paul says in Philippians 2 from verse 3, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. And have this mind amongst yourself, yourselves, which is yours in Jesus' Christ is that the mind that we have here how do you take Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot in that context absolute political enemies in every other situation those men would have hated one another how do you take those men men like Matthew and Simon and put them together and instead of striving with one another they strive for one another in love and in unity. You must find something that trumps the the other differences that they have, that trumps political division. With eyes set on Jesus Christ, they were able to find greater unity in Him than political division. A.W. Tozer spoke on how we as a church would build unity He said, Has it ever occurred to you that one hundred pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each must individually bow. So one hundred worshippers met together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. He says, social religion is perfected when private religion is purified. Are your eyes fixed on Jesus Christ? We have grounds for unity in the glory that we have seen, and what He has done for us. But what of the glory that we have yet to see? Look at verse 24. Father, I I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. What is it that gives joy to your Christian obedience? That makes you joyful and obeying in all things? including having the strength to forgive somebody who's wronged you, or peace to turn the other cheek, or patience for kindness, even in division. Our obedience is driven, firstly, by what we've seen in the glory of Jesus Christ, but also by what we long still to see, is it not? Think with me for a minute. What do you look forward to? In heaven, What is heaven going to be like? What is the joy for you there? What is the glory that you long for? The perfection of kingdom? That's certainly true. Jesus taking everything that you see that is wrong and broken and messed up in the world and fixing it and making it right. Do you long to see... Loved ones who have made that journey before you? I I do. What about the beauty of what he's going to do in recreation, a new heavens and a new earth? I don't know if there will be. Uh, I hope there will be. I hope there'll still be FIFA World Cup soccer when we're in heaven. The beautiful game made more beautiful. All of those things are, are things that we may be hoped for in heaven, but they are not the locus of our joy, are they? Anything that we enjoy there will be mediated through our joy in Him. Anything that shines bright in heaven only shines because it basks in His glory. Heaven needs no sun or moon, John says in the book of Revelation, because the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. One of my favorite lines from any hymn is the the one verse from Emmanuel's land. The bride eyes, not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my King of grace. Not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The Lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. There will be a day when the desire of Christ in this passage becomes the reality of our lives, when we will stand before Him and we will see Him, He will embrace us and welcome us to Himself. He says, I desire that they would be with me where I am to see my glory. Can you believe, can you comprehend that the holy and pure, righteous King Of all glory would say and ask this about you. Can you believe that he'd say, Father, you've given them to me. They're precious to me. Bring them home to me. Knowing what you know about yourself, knowing what you know about your heart of sin. How could you hear these words and look at somebody else? For whom he is praying the exact same prayer, and then not pursue unity and reconciliation. Do you get what I'm saying? In unity, we will stand together and we will gaze upon him in awestruck wonder. And when you look forward to that and remember that that is your desti- destiny, it, it has to transform your heart, it's got to transform the way that you live. It's got to be evident to the world. So finally, the result of our unity, Jesus speaks of here, is mission. Mission. There are many, many beautiful places I believe in this country, and I've only had the the privilege of seeing a, a small handful of them. Um, and one of those times came when uh, with Sheree before we had kids, we went with some friends to to George on a trip to George and. Uh, Driving back from George to Johannesburg, uh, it's a long journey, so we left at 3 in the morning. Uh, We drove up Otoniqua Pass, which unfortunately it was too dark for me to really experience. But we got to, to the outskirts of the Karoo as the sun was rising. It was one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen in my entire life. The sun rising above the Karoo. It was so wonderful, but everyone else in the car was sleeping. And I was enjoying it by myself. And so I began to um, ooh. ah, try louder and louder for somebody to wake up so I could share it with them. When you see something glorious, you, you want to share it, don't you? We sing a song here called Holy Spirit, Living Breath of God. And one of the verses goes like this. Holy Spirit, from creation's birth, giving life to all that God has made, show your power once again on earth. Cause your church to hunger for your ways. Let the fragrance of our prayers arise. Lead us on the road of sacrifice, that in unity the face of Christ will be clear for all the world to see. How is the world going to see the glory of Jesus Christ? Well, one of the ways, the way that Jesus is praying for today is through the unity of the church. Thomas Mainton said, divisions in the church breed atheism in the world. And the opposite is true as well. In a world fraught with division, supernatural unity in the church will ripple out with evangelistic purpose. Look at verse 21. He says, that they may be one, All may be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse 23, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Jesus is saying when the world observes real unity in the church, they come to two conclusions, some of them. That Jesus is who he says he is, first of all. And secondly, that there's something going on there. There's a supernatural love that must be operative amongst these people. There is no other explanation. That's what happens when real unity is on display in the church of Jesus Christ. Francis Schaeffer said on, on, I think, this passage, or maybe on John 13, and this is something that is sobering, should be sobering for us. In the midst of the world, he says... In the midst of our present culture, Jesus is giving a right to the world. Upon his authority, he gives the world the right to judge whether you and I are born-again Christians on the basis of our observable love towards all Christians. That's pretty frightening. Jesus turns to the world and says, I have something to say to you. On the basis of my authority, I give you a right. You may judge whether or not an individual is a Christian, on the basis of the love they show to all true Christians how will the world know that we are his disciples and we love one another and how awesome is this line he says they will know the world will know that you love them as you love the son i can't wrap my mind around that look around you today Look at the terrible sinners all around you. Now look at yourself, the worst of the lot. The Father loves us. He loves his children as he loved the only begotten Son. This passage, he's saying, saying, you've given them to me. We are precious to him, belong to him, blood bought by him. If you 've come to believe in him and trusted him alone for salvation, but the love of Jesus Christ, when that is at work in your life, it must transform you. How can you be loved by this love and it not transform verse twenty five and twenty six A righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. D.A. Carson points out, he says, The crucial point here is that this text does not simply make these followers of, of Christ the objects of God's love, but promises that they will be so transformed as God is continually made known to them that God's own love for His Son will become their love. The love with which they learn to love is nothing less than the love among the persons of the Godhead. So as we together, through spirit and through the word, are beholding, beholding the glory of God and the face of Jesus Christ, Paul says it transforms us from one degree of glory to another. It must change the way that we interact with one another certainly. His love more and more must fill our lives and overflow to the praise of Christ in the world. The outpouring and the experience of Trinitarian love that then reproduces itself in the lives of believers reminds the world of the unity that it can't find, can't seem to find, a unity that we all crave. May our unity not be Dependent upon our own strength, may it be something supernatural from a transformation of love. I was listening to a, a sermon by T.J. Timms on this, this passage, and I learned something um, new that was I found very interesting. I don't know if you're aware, but the the planet Neptune, we didn't discover it by observation. We didn't uh, discover it first because we saw it. We discovered it through mathematics. In the 1840s, before it was possible to to look close enough, uh, mathematicians uh, were, were looking at the orbit of Uranus, and they noticed irregularities in that orbit. And through mathematics, they determined that there must be something else there disrupting that orbit, something the size of a planet. When they, we eventually plugged that mathematics into a telescope to look in that location to within one degree of accuracy, we found the planet Neptune. It was a mathematical certainty before anybody could ever see it. So T.J. Timms says of this, he says, In just the same way, people become certain that Jesus is alive, that he was sent into the world, and that he is on the move today by the orbit of our love together, how it changes our community, how we're out of step with and unexplainable by anything in this world. Is that the testimony of Hillcrest Baptist Church? 2020 has made cold porcupines of this world. The world needs something from us. We are called to give testimony to the truth that Jesus is Lord, that he is reigning and that his love is real among the people of God. The world needs from us brave, sacrificial, selfless love. May Christ's prayer for the church be effectual in our church as well. Let's pray. Jesus, we, just, we come before you and we, we just ask this prayer. This us pray that you prayed for us. We ask it again. Would you make us unified? Would you help us to hold strongly to the truth, the revelation that we have received about who you are? Would you help us that our eyes would be fixed upon you, not upon ourselves and upon petty hurts or even big hurts, Lord? Give us a spirit of forgiveness and reconciliation. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would would begin a work today where it is needed, a work of reconciliation in people's hearts. I pray that you would bring conviction, that when we leave from here as a church, we would be a people running towards one another for reconciliation. Build this church, we pray as we are unified in you. Amen.